0: Good Good morning, uh, beloved. This is Sunday morning, April 26th. We are continuing our study in Romans 5 to 8 called the reign of life. And we are getting into verses 12 to 19, which couldn't be more explicit about why those in Christ are in life. Those outside of Christ are in the reign of death. So let me pray for us as we look at God's word. Lord, thank you from our brothers and sisters. Though not present, I see their faces. Uh, What a joy to do so. Thank you for your word. It helps us. It explains so much. It makes sense out of our experience and reality. It causes our thinking to be true and right and align with the way things are. Take and use our study to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I'm going to read these verses for us and I'll just uh, admit this at the beginning. It looks like a bunch of theology. And it is. Technically speaking, if you hung a label on these verses, Romans 5, 12 to 19, you would call this the imputation of Adam's sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Looks like a bunch of theology. No commands in here, no what to do. However, think how practical this is. How many people that you know that aren't followers of Jesus, wonder, why do I do the things I do? Why do I see that there's things in my heart that aren't right? Why do people do bad things? And in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, people wonder, why is there death in the world? Why is there disease in the world? Well, we get the answer right here in this text. So in that sense, this theology could not be more relevant to our lives uh, than in the midst of a pandemic called coronavirus. So let's look together at God's word. It's Romans 5, 12 to 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that, that, uh, that verb came into the world is an aorist tense. That means it's an event that happened in the past one time. Aorist tense, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. That also is an aorist tense. Spread, aorist tense. Spread to all men because all sinned. Guess what? That's an aorist tense. Sin came is aorist. Sin spread is aorist. And all sinned is an aorist tense. Past tense. Verse thirteen. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come, obviously a reference to Jesus. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And I've included 20 uh, to 21 in here. And I'll pick those up at the beginning of next week because they launch us into chapter 6. So let's remind ourselves of the context. Coming out of Romans 5, 1 to 11, Paul has established two facts. First fact, we are naturally, remember the four words used in in, uh, chapter 5, 2 through 11, we're naturally sinners, ungodly, helpless, and God's enemies. Those are the things that describe human beings under the reign of death. Those are things that mark our depravity. Those are things that answer the question, what does it mean to be spiritually dead? To have no natural appetite for God. Spiritual death means not only are we alienated from God he's alienated from us we have no appetite for God we have as much appetite for God as a dead person has an appetite for food so it raises the question how did I get that way and people who deal seriously with their own ethics their own behavior their own motives their own heart not necessarily Christians invariably wonder why am I the way that I am how did I get this way Okay, so Paul's going to answer that question in these verses. Second fact, based on the context, verses 2 through 11, is um, we live, we who belong to Christ, live in the reign. We live in the reign of life because of our union with Christ through his resurrection. So we're going to see that there's only two places to live. The reign of death, the union with Adam, and everything that follows. Living in the reign of Christ, in union with Christ, and everything that follows. There's only two possibilities for humanity. We're all born, as we're going to see, in union with Adam, spiritually dead, naturally enemies of God, ungodly, sinners, helpless. But the gospel creates this marvelous transformation, this transfer, this deliverance from one reign to another. If it was true of Adam, I'd clasp my hands together. Here's Adam. We're all born in solidarity with Adam, dead in our sins. By faith, remember, chapter five, verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is at peace with God. Christ has died to sin; we've died to sin. Christ has been raised to life; we've been raised to life. So we we are no longer. Paul's going to show us in Romans six. This person that was born in solidarity with Adam no longer exists. That person was crucified with Jesus on the cross. A new person exists in union or solidarity with Jesus. We're united to Jesus. He reigns in life. We reign in life. So we're kings with Jesus Christ in life. Those are the two facts. And so it raises the question that Paul's now going to answer. How did all this come about? How can one person's sacrifice bring blessing to so many? That's that's the idea. Or to make it very personal, those of us who struggle with sin and doubt and fear and wonder, am I going to make it to the end? Those are things that plague the hearts of many of us. How can I be so secure in Christ, trusting his merits, not my own? If you look at the handout, I have in parentheses that we're all saved by works. Anybody troubled by that saying? You shouldn't be. I'm not saying you're saved by your works. We're saved by the works of Christ. We're all troubled. We're all saved by works. I want you to think of it this way when God See that okay? Got okay, I got an affirmation. God created you a human being to reflect his image, to bear his image, to replicate in your body on this earth his character where that is spelled out is the law of God. So to be human is to be related to God through the law of God. And the law of God has two things. It has its demands. And you know what the demands of the law of God are? Be perfect. And the law has its penalties. The soul that sins shall die. What it means to be in relationship with God is spelled out in the law. The law tells us who God is. It tells us what God requires of us. And the point I'm making here is that we are saved by the work of Christ. We're saved by his perfectly keeping the demands of the law, his righteousness. And we're saved by Jesus bearing the penalty of our law breaking on the cross. So this is the double imputation of 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin the perfect law-abiding Jesus. To become sin on our behalf, he bore the penalty that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we're all related to God by law, law law-keeping. In the case of the believer, it's Jesus' law-keeping that makes God pleased with us, that makes us acceptable to God. We'll see a little bit later in Romans 6 that that, uh, Adam and Eve were created to keep the covenant of works, to maintain a relationship with God. That was to obey God perfectly. Uh, They blew it. Christ has come and kept that covenant of works for us in our stead. Okay, so let's get there on the handout to Paul's answer to how we can be so secure, how one man's sacrifice can bring blessing to so many. And we're looking at the the word, therefore, in verse 12. Paul's then concluding or applying this statement, we shall be saved by the life of Jesus from uh, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And he teases out a just-as comparison, to prove his point, a contrast between Adam and Christ, two heads of two races. Notice there I've uh, put in parentheses for you the other main place in the New Testament Paul compares Adam and Christ. They're very important, so I do want to read them for you. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 21 21-22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then he comes back to this comparison later in 1 Corinthians 15, his great chapter on the necessity of the resurrection of Jesus, verses 45 to 49. Thus it's written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we've borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. He's arguing for the fact that if we're in union with Christ, and Christ is in a glorified body, we're going to have that same glorified body as well. want to point those two uh, verses out to you, very important parallel verse- verses to what Paul is teaching here. So, Here's the main thrust because of the one great thing Christ did is greater than the one great thing Adam did. If you were to diagram verses 12 to 19, it would look like this. Verse 12, just as, so he's beginning an analogy and a comparison. And then I've got, see this nice new math here, the brackets? You, You like that? In verses 13 to 14, the two heads are introduced Adam and Christ are introduced. Then in 15 to 17, the two heads are contrasted. And then 18 and 19, you can put a 19 next to that 18. I left that off of there. The two heads are compared. So that's sort of how these verses are diagrammed. It's very clear. It's very logical, very Greek, as it were, in his thinking to that extent. So let's now look at these different reigns that Paul teases out. Uh, The reign of death, verses 12 to 14, He basically teaches us three stages in human history. By virtue of saying sin came into the world, that implies a time when what? There was no sin in the world. So before sin was in the world, we have this picture of life given to us in Genesis 1 and 2. And it's important when you think about the question of man's will to describe Adam and Eve's will in this state. Now, you can answer the questions I ask it. You don't have to answer it out loud for everyone. Was Were Adam and Eve able not to sin? Of course. They were born in perfect holiness and righteousness. So they were able not to sin. Were they able to sin? Yes, obviously because they did. So they were able to sin. Strictly speaking, they had free will in its purest sense. God was testing their wills. This is the first probation. Don't eat of that tree. We all know that they failed it. Before sin was in the world, Adam and Eve were able not to sin. They were able to live before God, and of course they should have, in perfect holiness and righteousness. And they were able to sin. We know that because they did. After that... Using these words, tell me the condition of man once we died spiritually and sin came into the world. We are not able not to sin. Not able not to sin. This is going to be on the final exam. Make sure you write that down. Man in his natural state is not able not to sin. We're slaves to sin. When you become a new creation in Christ, what then is true of you? Are you able not to sin? Absolutely. That's what Paul's going to get at in Romans chapter 6. Uh, Jesus says in John 8, we're no longer slaves to sin. But are you able to sin? Uh, evidently. At least in my case, sin every day. So we're, as it were, back to where Adam and Eve were before sin entered the world. And what is glory going to be like? Not able to sin, with no possibility of sinning. Okay? Glory, not able to sin. So that just so when people want to talk about the nature of free will, the the really somebody needs to mute their uh, computer. The the question isn't the will; it's the desire. Do you have the desire in your heart to do good? In our natural state, we do not. So we have phase one before sin entered the world. And then Paul says, sin entered. He's obviously referencing Genesis 3. He tells us how this happened. One man, Adam, although sometimes the Bible annexes Eve's choice as the federal head of the race, as we're going to see in this text, God holds Adam accountable, as it were. One man, Adam, sin, what is sin? It's willful rebellion against God. Sin is putting myself in the place of God. That's effectively what Adam and Eve's choice was. Putting themselves in the place of God. Salvation is God putting himself in the place of sin. That's what happened on the cross. God willingly putting himself in the place of those who sinned put themselves in the place of God. So sin is willful rebellion, and then we're going to see in uh, in Romans seven how Paul personifies sin, kind of talks of it as an entity. He's in good ground doing that because right after we get out of Genesis three and chapter four, Paul, when he talks to, uh, Cain, excuse me, God, when he talks to Cain, says to Cain, um, "Sin is crouching at the door, the door of his heart." And it's desires for you, but you must master it. In a sense, that statement frames the question that is answered throughout the rest of the Bible. How can sin that's crouching at the door to destroy us, how can it be conquered? And of course, the answer is given in Genesis 3.15, through the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. The only way sin can be conquered is through Jesus Christ. So one man, Adam, sin entered the world And death through sin. The reason things die, the reason we have disease, the reason we have calamity is right here. Sin brought death into the world. It invaded God's glorious, pristine creation as an unnatural abnormality. That's why I almost always say when I do a funeral, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Death isn't natural death isn't natural it is a horrible aberration to the beautiful lovely pristine perfect sinless flawless deathless world God created death is in the world because of sin so when people ask you why does God allow calamity why is there sickness why is there disease why do people have to die this is the text that references this awful choice In Genesis chapter 3. And then Paul says death spread to all men. Death spread to all men. What does that mean? Because all sinned. So there's basically three interpretations of Paul's phrase because all sinned. Some people say it means that everyone born into the world sins. Is that true? Everyone as it turns out born into the world sins. Is that true? It is true. Some people say the way to interpret because all sinned is we inherit Adam's sinful nature and thus we sin by nature. Is that true? Did we inherit Adam's sinful nature and we, by nature, and we sin by nature? Yeah, that's true. Most Reform commentators take it this way. That there is a one-time sinning activity in Adam that we all participated in that produced sin. So you and I, as it were, sinned with Adam in that awful choice. We were there somehow, somehow mysteriously, Adam as our federal head. We were complicit in that choice. So there's no person born that can say, uh, uh, well, so here's the question. Thoughtful uh, people who begin to think deeply about theology, not necessarily Christians, and they begin to come to grips with the fact that, oh yeah, I sin, there is sin in this world, there's death in this world, but not by my choice. You know, I wasn't there in the garden, and a lot of people would like to maintain, if I was there, I wouldn't have sinned. I'd have done better than Adam. You ever thought that yourself? I'd have done better than Adam? So, of course in our pride we might think that, but are you really slamming Adam No, you're actually impugning God. Because to say, I wouldn't have sinned in Adam, don't hold me accountable for Adam's choice, is to say God made a bad choice electing Adam to represent you. And you know what? God doesn't make bad choices. Our uh, Adam's choice, awful choice to disobey God, would have been the choice of any of us had God elected us to be in that place. But it is a very hard, I just want you to know, in theology, it's a very hard question. We are held accountable for this choice. God says we participated in some way in that choice, Adam representing us. And as soon as you want to say, it's not fair for God to hold me accountable for something Adam did, then God could say, well, it's not fair for me to offer you salvation through something Jesus did. So there's a parallel thing here. We sinned and died in Adam, but we have life and salvation in Jesus Christ through these two heads. We'll pack that out, unpack that in just a second. But I just want you to know, maybe you've struggled with this. Human beings who get serious thinking about these matters struggle with this. Um, look, I am a sinner. I was born a sinner. I didn't ask to be born a sinner. And I'm a sinner because of this complicity in Adam's choice. And I think when the day is over, we need to say to people, well, there is something you can do about that sin, and that is flee to Christ. So the next phase Paul talks about is 13 and 14. He references this time period between Adam and Moses. He says, for sin indeed was in the world. How did sin get in the world? Adam and Eve's choice. Everyone (coughs) born from Adam and Eve's loins were born sinners with a sinful nature. Turns out they all sinned. It was so bad that Genesis 6, 5 tells us that this is right before the flood, the reason God destroyed the world. The Lord saw that the the wickedness of man was great on the earth, that the only intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Man, that is total depravity, run amok. Who would want to live in an earth where the only intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually? It sounds like everybody but Noah and his family. Amazing. Anyway, and the only reason the world's not that way right now is what? You know the answer. Common grace. God, in his benevolent love for his world, his creatures, is restraining all of that sin from having its full expression out of his sheer goodness and kindness to his creation. If God took his hand of restraint off the world, we would be no better than that situation. In Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. The only intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it says the earth was filled with violence. People were killing each other. So uh, God destroying the world at that time was a very just act of uh, judicial retribution for sin. Okay, so Paul says, sin was indeed in the world before the law was given. And so when he, when he uses Moses, he's obviously talking what? Well, at, at Moses, the law of God comes, the specific revelation of the mind of God for ethics, what God requires of human beings, that is codified, it's written down as it were, as Moses receives the law from God on Mount Sinai. Sin was in the world before the law was given, and then he makes this curious phrase, but sin is not counted where there's no law. Does that mean everybody got off the hook who sinned between Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden and Moses receiving the law of Mount Sinai. No, it doesn't mean that. Because it says sin was in the world. They were sinners. Best way to understand that is, where there's no law, there's no law to break. Only Adam violated an expressly verbal, overtly revealed command of God, which was, don't eat that tree. Everyone else, as it were, sinned against conscience. Paul's already told us in Romans 2 that unbelievers who don't have access to the law of God show the work of the law written in their heart. That's conscience. So believe me, everyone who sinned from Adam and Eve to the time of Moses sinned. They had awareness of that sin. They violated conscience in that sin, and God held them accountable for that sin. It's not as if because... Uh, That sin was encountered against them that people then died and went to heaven scot-free. It's not that at all. The Bible doesn't teach that. Far from it. So Paul says death reigned even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Again, because they're in solidarity with Adam. They're spiritually dead. They lived under the reign of sin. They could not but sin. Remember? Not able not to sin once sin enters the world before we regenerate. Uh, death reigned over those sinning whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In that uh, Adam was the one who heard the verbal command from God in his ears don't eat that tree and, God, and Paul is making the point that people didn't sin in that deliberate specific way. Adam did. Nonetheless, we're complicit in that choice which is why we have this sinful nature and God holds us all accountable for that awful transaction. Okay. Okay. And now the reign of life. Verses 15 and following. This analogy between two heads is unfolded. There's one similarity that's uh, explained between Christ and Adam. And the similarity is the pattern of events. Many people, here's the pattern. Many people are affected by one man's deed. And here I've got in your handout this technical term. The federal headship of Adam and Christ. God elects a person to represent a whole body of people. Adam is the head of the race, the federal head of the race, called by God to represent the race. Adam is representing us in the garden. Adam failed. We failed. in that rep- It's a little bit like uh, at the end of a soccer game when everything's tied. The, uh, the, way you decide a, uh, the way you decide a winner is you have penalty kicks. And so the team elects the best player to come in and do penalty kicks. And obviously whoever gets the goal and the other team can't match it, they win the soccer game. That's an example of federal headship. The actions of the one person, that one kick, accrues the benefit to the whole team. The whole team wins on the strength of that one action. The whole race lost on the strength of Adam's federal action at sinning against God. We sinned in him. <clears throat> And and God's chosen race is saved by the one wonderful act of Jesus, as he's going to unpack here for us. So there's federal headship, one man chosen to represent the race. Here are the dissimilarities that Paul teases out. First of all, what's Adam's motive? Self-assertion. Christ's motive? Self-sacrifice. The effect of the deed, we're told that death brings judgment, judgment. Resulting in condemnation, Christ's grace results in justification. A declaration of righteousness. And the nature of the deed. Adam's was an offense, one man's offense, one act of disobeying God. He refused to obey the command not to eat of that tree. He ate of the tree, that's the one offense. Christ's one act of righteousness. Now you might say, just a second, Jesus was sinless his whole life. Jesus' life was full of acts of righteousness. Never for a nanosecond in thought, word, or deed did the man Jesus Christ deviate from the law of God. Jesus loved the Lord his God with all his soul, all his heart, all his mind, all his strength. Every second of his life till he breathes his last. So how can Paul call Jesus' life one act of righteousness? His whole life was a display of righteousness. And glory to God for it, right? Because that's the thing that saved us. When you're reading through the Gospels and you come to the temptation of Jesus, say in Matthew 4, and Jesus is being tempted... And of course, he's leaning wholeheartedly on the word of God. You realize at that moment, the whole salvation of the world is, 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 uh, is at bay, at rest. The whole salvation of the world. You read that text and you go, Jesus, you're passing this test so I can be saved. Your, your, uh, your acts of righteousness, trusting your father, not believing the lie of the devil, not taking something that your father hasn't given you in a way he hasn't called you to give. God is giving his son a people by Jesus dying for them. So this one act of righteousness is is code for Jesus' willingness to sacrifice himself as a sinless substitute. It's Jesus on the cross, never having sinned, taking the sins of his people into his flesh, removing those sins, bearing the judgment of God, the wrath of God for those sins, as a sinless substitute, the Lamb of God, who is absolutely without sin. So that's the best way to understand this one act of righteousness. So look at the parallelism then in verse 16. On the one hand, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Here's what you need to remember in that. We live in a moral universe That means a holy, righteous God who cannot stand sin, who cannot look upon sin. God who is a just judge. He must punish sin or he wouldn't be good. Right? Can you imagine a judge in a court of law letting somebody who was clearly guilty go free? Abdicating the demands of justice, that judge would not be good. That judge would not be just. Well, God is both just and good. So that means in God's universe, wherever there is sin, sin must be punished. You can put it this way. Every sin inexorably, now I stole that word from R.C. Sproul. I, I love it when Sproul uses that word. Inexorably means without fail absolutely, with certainty, every sin inexorably attracts judgment. It attracts judgment. It must be judged. So on the cross, Jesus taking your sins is, by definition, taking the judgment for your sins. And so on the strength of that, Paul will then go on to say in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We're united to Christ In his death on the cross, the judgment to our sins is borne by Jesus in his body. Therefore, there's no condemnation. We're united to him in his life and resurrection. So all I'm saying there is this one judgment brought condemnation. The hope of the gospel is I'm not condemned. I couldn't be condemned. God can't condemn me for my sin if he condemned Jesus in my place for those sins. And then the second half of verse 16. On the other hand, the free gift Following many trespasses brought justification. What do we get through the grace of Jesus in exchange for our many trespasses? The gift of being declared righteous in God's sight? Justification is a legal matter. It's forensic, it's spoken. it's alien. on the basis of Christ's righteousness, the Father closes in that righteousness. And he treats us as if we have never sinned. Just as if I'd never sinned. And even better, we possess the perfect moral record of Jesus. I'm always encouraged when I do uh, new member interviews with children, younger, younger people. And I really un- know they understand the gospel when I ask them, so, because you've trusted Christ... Are you as righteous in God's sight now as you'll, ever be, as you'll ever be? And to hear a child say, yes, tells me they really get the gospel. And I hope that means they can live a life never feeling they need to prove their worth to God, that they have their worth proven for them in Christ. Verse 17, he keeps unpacking it. For if, because of one man's trespass, Adam's sin. Death reigned through that one man. Much more. Here's the greater thing Christ did. Will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. Don't you love Paul's heart. The abundance of grace. Read it's. It's always greater. Well, this is how he's going to end the chapter. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. No matter how heinous Adam's choice was, and it was awful, look at the world because of it. Grace is more abundant. And righteousness is a free gift. All you can do is receive this gift. The empty hands, you know, what do we give God in order to be saved? Sin. It's all you can give God. Sin. And all your acts of self-righteousness, which are sinful as well, acts of self-righteousness. What do we get in return for that, for for, for forgiving God's sin? The gift of righteousness, a right standing with that which no one will stand in the presence of the Lord. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You're reigning now with Jesus. You're kings with Jesus. Paul says one day we'll reign the whole universe with Jesus. Well, that reign has already begun. And it should first be practiced as we are putting off the deeds of the flesh and allowing the Spirit of God to reign in us, the truth of God's Word, to capture our hearts, to win our affections. We're no longer slaves to sin. He's going to get into that in Romans 6. But there are various ways Christians ought to express this reign that we share in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 17. Now verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, right? It's like, okay, Paul, I I get the point you're making. I, I see that now. So, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Hmm. Do you have any trouble with that phrase? Justification of life for all men? Now, that might sound like universalism. And a universalist, Christian universalist, would teach this. When Jesus died, he saved everyone in the world, irrespective of whether or not they trust him or not. That's one variation of universalism. Christ died for everyone. There are people who believe that. I've met people who believe that. In spite of all the calls in the scripture to personal faith and repentance, to personally trust in him, perishing without trusting in Christ. That is not what Paul means. Leads to justification and life for all men. You can see how all men is qualified in verse 17. Who's the all men of uh, of this phrase? It's those who receive the gift. And you can read in this that Paul has in mind, which he's already stated in the first um, five chapters, that the gospel isn't just for Jews, it's for Jews and Gentiles. Justification of life comes to all men, irrespective of their ethnic identity. All men, men, women, black, white, yellow, whatever nation, Jew, Gentile. Justification of life is a gift for anyone who receives it. God doesn't make any distinctions based on the way human beings do for their own prejudices. So I just want to clear that up. This is not teaching universalism. The all men is clarified in verse 17 those who receive the gift of grace and free righteousness. And as if he wants to do a little wrap-up here, verse 19 says it in essentially the same thing again. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made righteous, or sinners, excuse me, Adam's one act of disobedience, we're sinners in that because of that, so by one man's obedience, again, Jesus' entire life and specifically his act of self-sacrifice as a sinless offering for sinners, the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Wait a minute, future tense? I thought we're justified past tense by faith. Well, it's his way of speaking, but also the Bible looks at justification, not just past tense, but there'll be a future vindication of all those who belong to Jesus Christ. There'll be a future vindication of their righteousness in Christ when Christ comes again. It does not yet appear what we are. It will be when Christ comes again. One man's obedience, what Jesus did, the many, those who trust in him, obviously, will be made righteous. We trust in the gift of righteousness through our lord jesus so think about two elements of adam's sin the bible distinguishes between the guilt of adam's sin guilt is related to justice it's a failure to satisfy the demands of god's law so we are guilty we are lawbreakers that's one aspect of sin guilt objective Failing to give God what he is owed, what he has deserved. as a failure to comply with the stipulations of the law of God. That's the guilt of sin. But there's also the corruption of sin, the pollution of it. And that's related to God's holiness. Sin makes us unholy, ungodly, desiring things that don't please the Lord. So the gospel addresses both of, both of these. How does the gospel address the guilt of your sin? Your guilt has been removed. Jesus is condemned judicially for all your law breaking. He imputes to you his perfect righteousness. You're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God looks at you. He can't but love you as he loves his own Son because you're in union with his Son, even though we keep sinning. This is hard to grasp. This is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. It's never an excuse to sin. That's exactly what Paul's going to anticipate people thinking next, in next week's lesson, the end of chapter 5, the beginning of 6. Well, if, sin, uh, if uh, sin, ultimately as great as sin is, that's going to make grace look all the more. Let's go on sinning and make grace look better. No, he's going to say that's perverted thinking. I'll show you why next week. But the gospel addresses both. The guilt of sin. Our guilt is removed into the body of Jesus. His righteousness imputed to us as a gift. And it addresses the corruption of sin. How? The spirit of God comes into our hearts. He begins to purify them. And you'll see in the sermon here in uh, in about an hour. How we are called to an ongoing work of purifying our hearts. Peter's going to show us that one of the most significant ways we do that is by loving each other. But that's an invitation to stay tuned for the sermon. So there you go. A lot of theology. Hopefully where it leaves you is in awe of the righteous, selfless sacrifice of Jesus. Rest in the gospel. Preach this gospel to yourself resist all efforts of our hearts to prove our worth to God, to make ourselves acceptable to Him. No, it's all been done in Jesus. Thank God that He is greater than the awful thing Adam did. We were complicit in that. We need to own that. And we need to own even more all that Jesus us is for us in the gospel. So let me pray for us as we close. Lord, uh, sometimes the gospel seems too good to be true because our sin, our rebellion... Our sloth, our slowness to love you, to praise you, to thank you, to seek you, to honor you, to relish you. Our slowness to do those things is more real to us than this objective work of Christ. But thank you that our faith is ultimately extra-spective. It is outward-looking for our hope, for our life, for our forgiveness, for our justification, for our purity. For our life, we look outside of ourselves, not to ourselves, not inside ourselves, not our performance. We look to Christ. What a Savior. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty are, my glorious dress. You've made us beautiful by your cross. Your hideous, awful, painful, wretched, damning cross through that cross You have made us completely acceptable to your Father. Thank you. This should give us great hope, great confidence, great prayerfulness, great love for others, deeper love for you. Bring these things about as we realize this great lengths you've gone, Jesus, to undo what this one man, Adam, did in wretched disobedience to you. May we view our own sin as equally heinous and wretched, hating it, even in proportion to how much we love you and rest in Christ's righteousness. In his name we pray, amen. Well, thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> See. Oh.